This is Dan Wilson Uncancelled. Let's go. Now a major exclusive interview set to shake up the Tory battle to be PM. Earlier today, I sat down with Culture Secretary and Boris Johnson loyalist Nadine Dorries, who spoke exclusively for the first time about the Prime Minister's last stand in number 10, the betrayal by his Chancellor Rishi Sunak, and why she believes his political career is far from over. Nadine, I said it last week, but this is not a great time for British democracy, is it? Well, I think I'd have to agree with you. 14 million people voted for the Prime Minister and a number of MPs via a coup, frankly, removed him. It's, um, it's sad, it's tragic, it's uh, difficult because, you know, we, we thrive on a democracy. But I think there is a way through this. The Prime Minister is gone, he's not coming back. I think there's a lot of buyer's remorse. I think a number of people are thinking, what have we done? And I think that's evident by just what's happened over the last few days. But I think we need to now focus on the future and find a candidate who is going to continue what people vote, the policies people voted for. The sad thing is that many, many people actually voted for Boris Johnson himself. I think we need a candidate who can prove and can demonstrate, okay, he's gone, but what I'm gonna do is continue his legacy and continue the promises he made and the manifesto that he was elected on and the party was elected on. So I think that's one way we can get through this. But there is no, there's no easy answer to that conundrum. It is difficult. 14 million people voted for the Prime Minister, a group of MPs, ministers, uh, Chancellor, his sitting Chancellor, by what is effectively a coup, removed him. That's a very difficult position for the party to be in. And can we talk about that a a little bit? Because you were obviously sitting around the cabinet table uh, with those two men. Did you have any idea that they were plotting against the prime minister? I had my suspicions, um, not least because when some difficult decisions were taken, like when we wanted to lift restrictions from COVID, it was very difficult to get the Chancellor at meetings to, to commit to any policy at all. Rishi had been planning his campaign to the letter, launched it the day it was ready, and everybody else is kind of like blindsided and thinking, what's going on? We've all been working so hard. How can he have been that campaign ready? Well, the answer is he wasn't working so hard. We all were. and. And I'm afraid we found ourselves in quite a difficult position. So he was operating as the Prime Minister's Chancellor by day, but effectively plotting against Boris by night. I don't know which which end of the clock he was was operating in, but it's it's obvious, you know, I think people have proven it by the video and, and other ways. It is obvious that this has been on the cards for a long time and and in the planning under wraps for a long time. And I don't know how, I know how busy the rest of us are as cabinet ministers in our departments. I frankly don't understand at all how a sitting chancellor had any time to even consider what he was doing, let alone plan it, 
let alone be campaign ready, let alone be off the blocks on day one, it just doesn't make sense to me. In any other context other than he wasn't doing his job as Chancellor. And of course, now we have the political establishment and the grandees all saying that Rishi is just the inevitable prime minister. Presumably no, you disagree. I, I disagree with that for a number of reasons. I don't think you can have a prime minister who has behaved when he was chancellor, when he was number two, when he was sat at the prime minister's side in meeting after meeting. I don't think someone who's behaved in such a duplicitous and treacherous way and has removed being the cause of the vote being removed from 14 million people who voted for Boris Johnson and the Conservative government. I don't believe that person can become prime minister. And, and I do know that if Rishi does become prime minister, then it is over for the Tories at the next election. I agree. You're suspicious that he has the support of a certain Dominic Cummings? If Dominic Cummings is your most fervent and biggest supporter, then, you, then the question has to be asked by people like yourself, why would that be? And I think the answer has to be that Dominic likes to control. His support for Rishi is kind of off the scale. It's almost like for Dominic, it has to be Rishi and it's all out for Rishi. Why is that? And I think that it can only be because Dominic wants to be back at the heart. And that should be a terrifying thought for anybody. Can we go back to last week, Nadine, because you were living history in number 10 Downing Street, one of the few ministers that stayed steadfastly loyal to the prime minister. And I believe you told him in those meetings at number 10 that he should fight on. Well, we did reach the position, Carrie, myself and others, uh, I've got to say, actually, uh, you know, Carrie has been amazing throughout last week in terms of her support, her unflinching steadfastness, her lack of opinion in not pushing the Prime Minister either way, just being a sounding board. She's just been superb. But my word's my bond. If I pledge my loyalty to you, I, I will die in a ditch for you. I will never break my loyalty to you. And my loyalty is also to the British people. And I'm proud of that. You know, they can bring on as much, you know, approbation and sarcasm and unpleasantness towards me as they want for me doing that. But I do it all again. How was Boris when that realisation came? I've just got to go. Desperately sad. He, he won us an 80-seat majority. I'm not sure we will ever get that again. Less than three years ago. Less than three years ago. He got us through with COVID. He lifted the restrictions. He delivered Brexit. So many policies. I could just list them forever. All of those have been delivered by this Prime Minister. Do you understand why this Westminster witch hunt was so targeted against the Prime Minister? And I wonder if I could point you towards a tweet today uh, where someone asked the question, who would Labour fear most to run against at the next election? And Pippa Carrera, the political editor of the Daily Mirror, who has been behind so many of the stories against Boris Johnson, tweeted, Boris Johnson. Well, that doesn't surprise me, and I'm sure it doesn't surprise you one little bit. So the They people, wanted him out, didn't they? That's oh, my point. The Remain establishment, Labour and Putin, were the three who wanted him out the most. I do want to ask you about Jeremy Hunt, actually, because 
I feel very nervous about the prospect of him at number 10 Downing Street. And that is because of his response to the COVID-19 pandemic, primarily. And the fact that he was backing a authoritarian Chinese zero COVID policy. This is something that the mainstream media never talk about. Uh, but you have personal experience of that. So, yes, and interestingly, he's not denied um, what no. I've said about because he can't. He's refused to comment on it. I, I've made sure that every conversation I had was documented. During, we knew inquiry was going to come. And I remember two things actually about Jeremy. One was meeting him just after I'd been made a health minister, just before COVID um, hit our shores. And I asked him what he was doing. Was he staying as an MP? And he said, oh, yes, Boris can't deliver Brexit. Brexit can't happen. This government's going to fall on Brexit. I'm going to be here to make sure that I swoop in when that happens. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, was when COVID happened, um, Jeremy contacted me as a health minister and said, you've got to speak to Matt. It was at the time the Nightingale hospitals were being built. You've got to tell him that you Matt don't... Hancock. Yeah, you don't put sick people in the hospitals. You follow a zero COVID policy. My wife's family have experience of this. When someone tests positive, you take them from their home and you take them to an isolation centre and you leave them there in the isolation centre. That's the only way you can beat COVID. And I said, Jeremy, the British public will not stand for mothers and fathers and families and children being removed from their family and their home and put in isolation. And he says, who said they won't? And I said, well, the Behaviour and Insights team who I've discussed this with, they, they, it, they won't wear it. And he said, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Show me the evidence for that because I don't believe it. That's the way we have to deal with this is a zero COVID policy. Now, we would still be probably be in some sort of lockdown if Jeremy Hunt had been made prime we'll minister look at China today. instead of Boris Johnson. Is Boris Johnson's political career over? I've spoken to people in number 10 who still believe he has much to offer and suggest he could even return Churchill style to number 10 one day. Well, I believe that. It's not just me. There's a, a, I can assure you that my phone is full of messages from people saying he'll be back. Um, he's too, you know, you're not going to get, when you've got somebody who has um, his, his uniqueness, his appeal, his level of genius, you're not going to get, you know, uh, a male's dale and pale individual. You're going to get someone who's going to bring challenges. And, and I'm afraid that that is what we get with Boris. But we also get, you know, the fact that that people appear. He makes mistakes. He makes gaffes. So does everybody in the country. That's why they like him, because it's like looking at a, uh, a reflection. I make mistakes. I make gaffes. I get it wrong, too. And he isn't afraid to say that. And, and people see it and understand it. And, and I definitely think that one day Boris Johnson will be back. I think, you know, people have buyer's remorse at the moment. I know MPs are seriously. And uh, party donors, too. Certainly the party donors. And I know people are thinking, what have we done? Could he be back before the next election? Oh, I, I, I'm not going to speculate on when or how, but I don't think it's the end. He's gone now. And that's all I can say. He's gone now. What are his immediate plans once he leaves number 10? Well, I, I think at the moment, I think he's going to focus on saying thank you to people. I think you'll see him a lot about the country. 
Have you considered running for the leadership? Um, I I have, and um, yes, and I'm not in a position to to decide yet. So it's possible you would run, presumably on the basis of continuing the Boris Johnson legacy. So, so to be absolutely clear, for me, it is I, I have no personal ambition whatsoever. But for me, it's about the most important thing in what's happening right now is that we continue what 14, 14 million people voted for. We continue that manifesto and that legacy. I am very keen that people don't trash the legacy of the last three years of which a government of which I've been a part of as a minister and a secretary of state. And when do you have to make that decision? So, you know, it's, a lot's going to happen in the next 24 hours. Well, look, keep us posted. And presumably that's why you're not yet backing a candidate. So a lot is happening at the moment, Dan. I can't be more specific. There are a lot of conversations taking place. Nadine Doris, the Culture Secretary, thank you so much for joining us Thanks, tonight. Dan. But it's time now for Uncancelled. And this is where the world's top commentators speak out on controversial issues without the fear of the cancel culture sweeping the rest of the media. Now, morbidly refusing to get on with normal life, the freedom-hating lockdown hysterics are back. And, of course, leading the charge is none other than doom-monger-in-chief, independent sages, communist Suzanne Mickey, who today accused the government of, quote, shutting its eyes and letting COVID rip, as she warned of even more infectious variants. This dogged devotion to fear is a perfect example of mass formation psychosis, a term coined by Belgian clinical psychologist Matthias Desmet. And it's used to describe the mob hysteria linked to lockdown measures. He argues that most people accepted draconian and nonsensical restrictions from governments without question or logic because of the condition and his theory started gaining widespread attention when renowned virologist and mRNA vaccine developer Dr. Robert Malone referred to it on Joe Rogan's podcast last year. What Matthias Desmond has, has shared with us, brilliant insight, is another one of those, aha, now that part makes sense, um, which is that this comes from basically European intellectual inquiry into what the heck happened in Germany in the 20s and 30s. You know, very intelligent, highly educated population, and they went barking mad. Um, and how did that happen? Um, the answer is mass formation psychosis. The phrase has since exploded in popularity, and I'm delighted to say Professor of Clinical Psychology at Ghent University and author of The Psychology of Totalitarianism, Dr. Matthias Desmet, joins me now. Dr. Matthias, I mean, as the establishment bombards us with warnings of a new COVID wave, how do we stop the nation once again falling under the spell of mass formation psychosis? That won't be easy, I'm afraid. As soon as you understand the mechanism of it, you understand that once a large-scale mass formation emerges in a society, it's quite difficult to prevent the next one to, to happen. And that all, that's purely a consequence of, of, uh, of the psychological mechanism, mechanisms at work. Uh, so uh, the most important thing, I believe, is always that the people who 
uh, do not buy into the narrative, who have the capacity, the capability to take a, a critical distance of the narrative, continue to speak out. Continue to speak out in public space. That's the most important advice I could give uh, in this situation. Well, that's good because we will keep doing it. But I believe, Dr. Matthias, as well, you say it's important not to get angry or aggressive with folk who have bought into the mass formation psychosis. Yes, of course. And, you know, I never use the term mass formation psychosis. I always use the term mass formation just because from an intellectual and ethical and also a pragmatic point of view, I think it's better to avoid the psychiatric term. So, but uh, indeed, uh, the most important thing is just to speak out uh, without being too convinced that you are the only one who knows the truth. It's just best to speak out, to give your own opinion, to stick to the ethical duty of uh, of of, of articulating the words that you think uh, are sincere and honest without too much uh, being too fanatically convinced yourself of what you believe in and without really trying to convince the other people. So it's just um, the optimal strategy to deal with this phenomenon, I think, is, 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 is just uh, uh, sticking to the ethical duty of articulating the words that seems at that moment sincere and honest to you. Now, of course, Professor, your world blew up last year after this famous podcast between Robert Malone and Joe Rogan. That was the first time that I had learned of your work, for example. How important was that moment in terms of changing the narrative internationally about COVID hysteria? Yeah, that's hard to know, I think. I received many messages of people who, who told me that once they, they heard my theory and once they heard me explaining how this strange phenomenon of mass formation, this specific, this strange kind of group formation, which has such strange effects at the level of individual psychological functioning, uh, that once they heard me explain it, they started to see what was happening. And they started to understand uh, why they bought into the narrative for a certain time. And they also started to understand why uh, everyone around them started to behave in such a strange way. So, but of course, it's hard to know what the uh, what what ultimately the impact of of my theory on um, on uh, on on the the course of the of the of the phenomenon was. I have no idea, to be honest. I I think yeah, probably some people will have changed their mind, but. Uh, Maybe not too much. I'm not sure about it. No, I don't. I, I, it's hard to gauge. No, I think you've changed many, many minds. And when we come out of this thing, the exposure of the term mass formation psychosis is going to be incredibly important. So thank you so much for all of your work. That was Professor of Clinical Psychology at Ghent University and author of The Psychology of Totalitarianism, Dr. Matthias Desmet. First, Neil Oliver, tonight's outsider. Sri Lanka's president will resign to make way for a unity government, the prime minister's office has said, after tens of thousands of protesters stormed the official residences of both men. Months of frustration and anger at the country's unprecedented economic crisis boiled over at the weekend as occupiers vowed to stay in the palaces until both leaders have been officially removed from office. <laughs>
Gotabaya Rajapaksha's ruinous green agenda has plunged the country into crisis after his 2019 pledge to transform into an organic nation within a decade led to widespread food shortages. Going green has meant going hungry for Sri Lankans after a blanket ban on chemical fertiliser caused domestic production of rice to collapse by 20% while prices doubled. And discontent at the dangerous and damaging march to net zero is spreading west too. Inspired by Canada's liberty-loving truckers, Dutch farmers have created their own freedom convoy in protest at the country's strict green laws. Protests erupted across the border in Germany too as people all over the continent reject the speedy and devastating path to ruin. Neil Oliver... Wow, this is one heck of a movement and surely it must be a wake-up call to politicians here in the UK. Well, you would think so. Uh, what's extraordinary amongst much else is the extent to which it's being overlooked by, by, by so much of the mainstream media. Uh, as you say, these are, these are mass popular movements involving thousands of people. Uh, we see it in Sri Lanka, but we also see unrest in the Netherlands, in Italy, in Germany, in Poland, in Albania, elsewhere, but, but mostly overlooked. Uh, you would think it would be some kind of a wake-up call for, for politicians in the, in the countries in question, but I suspect although they hear it, although they can possibly smell the smoke of approaching fire, the extent to which they can do anything about it, I think, is, well, it, it's minimal because I don't think they're making their own decisions about their own countries. I think they're doing what they're told by others uh, in the banks and, and so on. Uh, you know, what happened in WE, uh, in Sri Lanka was a product of that of that government following, you know, the, the, the madness of, of WEF-inspired policies, uh, net zero, the, the stripping out of fertilisers and all the rest of it, which, as you said in your introduction, led to, you know, wholesale strife, uh, you know, collapsing uh, crops and all the rest of it. Uh, but, uh, but you would think in a sane world, the politicians in each of the countries would respond to the people. Uh, but I suspect they won't. We saw something similar in Canada uh, with the with the truckers, uh, freedom convoys. But look what happened there. Obviously, Justin Trudeau was was told to get a grip of that situation. He clamped down on it violently, uh, arrested bank accounts, and and you know took away the the funding for that for that movement. Uh, it's a very interesting one to watch. I'm glad you're covering it. I've been paying attention to it also, um, but I, I think it's a, the most a... important story internationally over the weekend. I think Neil, and it's fascinating, isn't yes. it, to see the MSM ignore it until they no longer can. And it reached that tipping point in Sri Lanka. Well, yes, those were absolutely extraordinary pictures of that movement. There were so many people and the, and the shots were from such a distance. It was like ants, I thought, moving towards that presidential palace in Colombo. Uh, but then uh, amazingly, really, you know, what happened around that, that pool, the presidential pool, which was obviously the people's pool, because it's, it, it's, their, it's their, president, their presidential palace. But it looked incredibly peaceful, uh, and I think that you know that's a that's a that's a testament to, to the to the reality of what's actually going on there. But it, it's it's so interesting to watch. Yes, it's been completely overlooked by the by the mainstream media. They're, they're still not paying attention to what's happening in Europe, but it will get to a point where it cannot be ignored. Uh, I think I think what you're looking at I think what you're looking at in the Netherlands, for example, is the d deliberate dismantling of the landowning class 
85% of the of the land in the Netherlands is, is held by farmers and, and has been for generations. And that's an inconvenient situation for globalist leftist politicians who've got other ideas for the land, which is specifically to build houses to cope with the with the with the immigration, the levels of immigration that are going on. They've empowered themselves, the politicians, to help themselves to 30% of the Dutch farmers' land. And surprise, surprise, just as I suspect you would or I would if somebody if the government came into our homes and said they were taking 30% of everything we had we owned and had worked for, the farmers have said no. Uh, as well as well they as well they should. It becomes harder and harder. They, What's happening in Holland? You know, it's being it's being sold as some kind of attempt to cut down on on emissions of, of nitrates. It's not that at all. As as far as I'm concerned, and as far as other commentators are concerned, it's a blatant land grab. It gets harder and harder to ignore the intent by by leftist globalist governments to return us to some form of feudalism. All these people like us owning property, owning homes, living lives independent of the state. You know what the intention there is to is to take people's independence away, uh, take away their property, take away the land, and if you control the if you control the farmland, you control the food, and if you control the food, you control the people. So you can plainly see what the agenda is. Fascinating analysis, Neil Oliver. We will stay on this, as I know you will too, Neil Oliver. Thank you Indeed. so much. Dan Wooden here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Wooden tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News. 